0: Take your copy of God's Word and open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Lord willing, today we will cover verses 23 through 31. We'll leave that last little part for Brian because it really goes better with the next section in chapter 5 than it does with what we're looking at today. So Acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 31. Let's read. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Okay, so Jesus ascended into heaven and He left behind this small infant church with leaders, the apostles, whom had been tasked to teach all the things that He had taught to them, teaching those things to the greater group to that church there in Jerusalem. Throughout His personal ministry, Jesus was the public figure. He took the, per- the brunt of the persecution. He was, he was the face of the program, so to speak. He's the one to whom all of the opposition was aimed at. But now, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the apostles are out in the front in the public, but so were the other disciples. That will become clear as we work through the book of, of Acts. And really in Acts 2, that's what we see. The church went public for the first time, really. And the apostles specifically put themselves out there as ambassadors of Jesus, as witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, who just weeks before had denied he even knew who Jesus was, Peter preached a very public, condemning Sermon actually accusing the Jewish nation of murdering their own Messiah. In the third chapter, Peter along with John then healed this man that had been lame from birth. We learned that in chapter three, verse two. In chapter four, verse twenty-two, we actually learned that this man was more than forty years old. So this is this is rather significant. This is undeniable. This is not like they talked the guy into faking it, and for forty years since birth, he faked it. Right? No, this was a well-known cripple man, lame since birth. It's not a stomach ache like the modern charismatic movement heals all the time. Something you can't see. This is this is verifiable. Well, understandably, this creates waves in the city. This is this is a big deal, and it gives Peter. Another opportunity for a very public sermon that he preaches in Solomon's Portico, verses 11 through 26 of chapter 3. And and Peter preached Jesus. He preached the gospel. He preached the resurrection. And he even said that this lame man is not anything we did. Jesus did that. Jesus is the one that healed this man. Well, you might expect it. The religious leaders are very unhappy They're very unhappy with the apostles. And I'm certain that it was intensified by the fact that about 5,000 men were converted to Jesus after Peter's preaching here. This is making major waves in the city. Peter and John are arrested, but it seems that the religious leaders really don't know what to do with them. They could not doubt the reality of this miracle. Nobody doubted this. There's no way it was faked. But they certainly did not believe the gospel. And they outright refused to believe that they had murdered their own Messiah. Peter, once again, boldly preached the gospel saying, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You see, He is, he is pointing a finger at them. They are guilty. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, they're just dumbfounded. Especially since this man who had been healed was standing there beside the apostles as they preached. And so they had nothing to say in opposition, verse 14 said. They send them out. They convert. They conferred privately and they decided just to tell them not to preach the gospel anymore. Just quit, just quit preaching in this man's name. Well, we learn of the attitude of the apostles at least in Peter and John's response. Verse 19, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Look, we're going to do what God has told us to do. Well... The religious leaders threatened them again, but they were put in a position where probably for their own reputation, they had to let them go because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. All were praising God because this man has been healed, and so they're worried about their own power, and they said, we've well, we got to let them go at this this point. Well, that leads into the section we're looking at this morning, which is... As you you could probably tell when we read it, it is predominantly a corporate prayer. That's what this passage is. The title of the sermon this morning is The Proper Response to Persecution. The Proper Response to Persecution. In this text, we see how the church as a whole responds to the persecution inflicted on her leaders, the apostles. Alright, so it begins in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So the apostles, Peter and John specifically, were let go. And it says here that they went to their friends. I'm really not crazy about the translation of the ESV here. In fact, I never found one English translation that I really thought did a great job here, literally, the Greek is fine, and none of them stick specifically with the Greek. The Greek just says they went to their own. They went to their own. The King James, for instance, says they went to their own company, but company's not in you know, the Greek. Uh, the, the LSB and I think the American Standard both say they went to their own companions, though in their defense, companions is in italics, but it's not there in the Greek. Literally, it just says they went to their own. The NIV translates that Peter and John went back to their own people. I think that's probably getting closer, but it's still trying to add to what is already sufficient. I think there's something more personable, maybe just in my mind, about the Greek just saying they went to their own. They had been out in the public. They had been with the religious people. Leaders. They had been to the temple. They'd been in the streets of the city of Jerusalem, but now they returned and went to their own, their own. There's really something profound about the unity that existed here early on in the in the church at Jerusalem. Now, understand these are these are all Jews in this passage. The The good guys and the bad guys, right? They're they're all Jews. The religious leaders are Jews. The people in the streets of Jerusalem are Jews. Everybody's Jewish. But here, their own doesn't necessarily refer to Jews, even though they were Jewish. It refers to fellow believers. Jewish believers, yes, but they're not bound by their Jewishness. They're bound by their common faith in the gospel, their faith in Jesus. That's their own. So the gathered church was a haven for Peter and John. They had been arrested. They had been threatened by the Jewish believers, but now they returned to their own. Daryl Bott writes this, quote, This expression is not accidental. In other words, Luke didn't give us this just to fill space. He refers to this this way on purpose. Quote, The expression is not accidental as it presses the point about how the early church saw itself as a community of mutually supportive friends. End quote. That's it. That's exactly what we see. And so Peter and John reported to the church what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. We know how the apostles responded. We saw that in Jacob's section last week. They responded by saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. That's the response of the apostles. But the question is, how is the the larger church going to respond, not just the apostles? Well, here in this text, we find out how the church responds. So it says in verse 24, when they heard it, at least a portion of the church you know all there were not thousands of people here but this was this was a representative portion of the church when they heard it they lifted up their voices together to God and said sovereign lord who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them so this this is the response of the church to the information that they've received from the apostles the information about how they were threatened, how they were arrested. What did the church do? They prayed. That's exactly what we see. This is not the first time we see corporate prayer in the book of Acts. We saw it back in chapter 1 when they were choosing a replacement for Judas. You know, we, we also saw a general mention of prayer back in chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So... Prayer was very important to this early church. Here again in chapter 4, we find the church praying. This is a wonderful example for us. This is one of the reasons at least that we pray in public, as a group, corporately. That does not mean you shouldn't pray privately. You certainly should, but we also should have corporate prayer when we come together as a a church. And notice, this prayer begins with an acknowledgement of who God is. That's biblical. Remember, this is how Jesus said to pray. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how the model prayer begins. And we see the disciples here in Acts 4 following that model that Jesus has laid out for them. So they're not repeating the words of the model prayer verbatim, but they are following the model. They say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Here they they acknowledge God as the sovereign Lord. These two English words actually come from one Greek word. Despotes is the name of the word. We get our English word despot from this Greek word. A despot is a ruler with absolute authority. In our world. But in English, there's a negative connotation to it. You know, usually he's a cruel leader with absolute authority, but that's not part of the meaning here in Greek. God is the despot for sure, he is the ruler of the entire universe, but he is not a cruel monarch like humans are. God is the all powerful. All-sovereign Creator of all things. In other words, He is God. That's what we mean when we say God is God. All of those things are part of that. I'm I'm reminded of the Stephen Curtis Chapman song that says, God is God and I am not. And that, that is a wonderful way to start your prayers. God, you are God and I am not. I mean, that's a wonderful way to begin. And here's the key to why they are saying this. These religious leaders had demanded that Peter and John speak no more to anyone in this name. That's chapter 4 verse 17. But the power of the religious leaders was limited to what God had allowed them to do. They weren't actually in charge. They thought they were but they were not actually in charge. They were subject to God and His will. Whether they acknowledged it or not is something else altogether. Listen, leaders in our world may not acknowledge God, but they're subject to God. John Stott writes this, quote: The Sanhedrin might utter warnings, threats, and prohibitions to try and silence the church But their authority was subject to a higher authority still. And the edicts of men cannot overturn the decrees of God. End quote. Amen. There's nothing that any leader, President of the United States or any other country can do to thwart God's plan. It's not possible. Well, this had to be a great comfort to this young church, right? Persecution is now coming their way. It's not just coming to Jesus. It's coming their way. They're being told not to carry out the very things that Jesus has told them to do, and yet they acknowledge that God is actually the one who is sovereign, not the political and religious leaders of their day. And so, verse 25, "...who," this is God, "...through the mouth of our father David, your servant," said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. So they acknowledge here that the Old Testament is God's Word. This is what God spoke through the mouth of our father David, His servant, by the Holy Spirit. So Psalm 2 specifically is what this is referring to, is God's Word. Well, I assume here probably there's one person leading in prayer. And when I refer to he, I'm referring to that person leading in prayer. They aren't all saying this in unison. So he, the one praying, references the first two verses of Psalm 2. I'm not going to go back through Psalm 2 because we preached through Psalm 2 and it's available for everyone to go and listen to. But there is, according to Psalm 2, unexpected raging of the nations against God and His anointed, against the Christ, against the Messiah, against Jesus. And this plot is in vain, according to the psalmist. It's it's a waste of time. You can't stop God. You can't stop His purposes. They plot, but they plot in vain. Jesus is going to conquer His enemies. He is going to rule over this world in righteousness. And there is nothing that this world and its leaders can do to stop that no matter how hard they try and no matter how big a weapons that they have. They cannot put an end to the plan of God. But here in this context, the the one praying is bringing this up to show that there is an expected persecution that comes against God and His anointed. We, We find that out back in Psalm 2. You may remember that Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, we see that being fulfilled here already in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John are carried before the Sanhedrin, before the court of their day. And this is going to ultimately affect all of the church here. And Then notice verse 27, For in this city, Jerusalem, for in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed. There's an obvious connection here between Acts 4 and Psalm 2. The anointed one is is Jesus. you know. For there were truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So it says, for truly... In other words, just as Psalm 2 says, it happened. That's not surprising. God's Word is factual. It's accurate. And if God, in fact, is raged against by the world and the kings and the leaders, then it's not a surprise that those representing God are raged against by the world and its leaders. And who was it that gathered together against God's holy servant in Jerusalem? We don't have to wonder. It's listed right here in the text. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Who would we say? Everybody. Everybody. In this case, it was not merely the ethnos Either the, the ethnicities of the world, the non-Jews, we call them Gentiles. Like that's not, that's not the only people. No. In fact, this generation of Jews took part right along with all the Gentiles here. You remember what Peter told them on the day of Pentecost? Men of Israel, Acts 2.22... To kill Jesus. What does it mean by lawless men? Well, men without the law. Gentiles. Romans, specifically. But it may have been the Romans that drove the spikes into Jesus' hands and feet, but the Jews were just as guilty. In fact, they're the ones that led the charge, they're the ones that brought Jesus to the Gentiles to have him crucified. Their king came to them. And they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. But that didn't stop God's plan. It actually fulfilled it. Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now this verse contains the truth on which this entire section, the entire Bible really, all of human history hangs on this truth. Our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is not an uninvolved deity who just spun the world on its axis and sat back in an easy chair to see what happened. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is very much involved in the daily happenings on this third rock from the sun, right? So who actually put Jesus on the cross? Was it, was it the enemies of God? Or was it God Himself? Yes. Yes. Yes is the answer to both questions. The enemies of God did precisely what they wanted to do in murdering Jesus. Nobody coerced them Nobody twisted their arm. Nobody forced their hand to do something against their will. They did what they wanted to do. That said, they were carrying out God's plan that He predestined to take place. Now listen, this this may make some of you uncomfortable, but nothing ever happens outside of God's plan. Ever. That includes the murder of Jesus. God actually, according to this text, predestined it to take place. That's the same Greek word underneath the word predestined that is used in Romans 8 8 and Ephesians 1 relative to our salvation. We were predestined and so was the murder of Jesus predestined. God then brought all of this about. The death of His Son by His own design. He predestined this And yet, these wicked men retained their guilt because they did exactly what they wanted to do. You say, man, that's pretty, that's pretty hard to understand. Well, you're not God, and neither am I. Yes, it's hard to understand, but it's true nonetheless, and we must embrace it and, and believe it. I, if you're a bit uneasy, I apologize about that, but I do not apologize for what this text says. If I'm too brash, I'm sorry for that. That's on me. But the text is clear enough. They did what they wanted and God made it happen. This is His purpose. But let me at least make this point. Perhaps this will help you if you're struggling with this whole idea. Either God predestined this and brought it about or the only other logical position would be that God lost control during the entire event. We don't want that. We don't don't want God losing control. That would be terrifying to believe that there was ever a time that our God wasn't in control. What would even be the purpose of our prayer life if God loses control sometimes, right? And what hope would we truly have for eternity if God loses control? God never loses control. It's a good thing that God brought this all about, that He was in control all the while. Because unless our God is sovereign over all things, we have no real confidence in the future. But He is sovereign. Verse 29 says then, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, it's about this time that we would expect them to gather together and hold hands and say, Strike them down, Lord. Because that's probably what we'd pray. Take them out. That's not what they pray for, though. They simply asked for continued boldness to preach the gospel. They're not asking for freedom. They're not asking for some assurance that the First Amendment would continue to be in place, right? Now, they didn't, they didn't have the First Amendment. I know my history. But nevertheless, that's not what they're praying for. They, they are simply asking for God to give them zeal, strength, strength. Boldness to continue preaching the gospel faithfully in the midst of persecution. We know again how the apostles responded whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to speak, or to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. But here in this text, we find out how the church corporately feels about the persecution. God, help us be bold in the face of. Of persecution. That's their prayer. They also ask God to continue to work through these signs, like the one done to this, you know, 40 year invalid that was, I assume, with them and part of this congregation here. They were not interested in being a charismatic showman collecting millions of dollars, by the way. They're not praying for a new jet. I don't know, maybe that's in between the lines somewhere, but I missed it. No, they wanted people to believe the gospel is true. That's what they desired. And they just hoped that the signs that that God used would confirm the message that they were preaching in the text. Well, verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So how did God respond to their prayer? Well, it's right here in verse 31 how God responded. This is God's response to the prayer. We have no biblical warrant, by the way, to expect an earthquake when we we pray. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. This is just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. This is what happened. This was in the early church period when all of these miracles were occurring. And so this is one of those. Nevertheless, God shook the place, confirming that He was pleased with this prayer. And it says here, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not in a salvific sense. These people were saved already. They'd already been saved. They'd already been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. That happens at conversion. When you believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, according to Ephesians chapter 1, that's not what's going on here. Certainly not the supposed second blessing that the Pentecostals talk about. That's not what's going on here. If so, we'd see the accurate gospel being preached among those groups today. And that's not what we see. No, they were, were, by this filling of the Holy Spirit, they were given the boldness that they prayed for. Notice what it says. They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. This is what they prayed for, and this is what was given to them here in the filling of the Holy Spirit. So the early church completely ignored the command of the Sanhedrin, not because we shouldn't follow the laws of the land. Look, if the speed limit says 55, you should drive 55. I know, it's convicting. Wendy drives way faster than 55. But seriously, we should follow the laws of the land until they conflict with God's law then we do what they did. We ignore. In this case, the laws of the Sanhedrin court conflicted with the instructions of Jesus. Go in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptize those who believe, right? That's what Jesus had told them to do. And so they ignored the laws of the land. really, we'd be better to say, rather than saying they ignored the laws of the land, we'd be better to say they followed the commands of Jesus. And it just so happened that because they followed the commands of Jesus, they ended up ignoring the laws of the land. But it's not that they were so much interested in being rebels to the, the, the system that they lived under. That's not it at all. They were interested in doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. And that was not easy. It was not easy. We'll know that the further we move through the book of Acts. We'll find out. This is, it's not easy to ignore what you've been told to do. And that's why they prayed for strength. They knew this was going to be hard. And God gave them strength. And so here they preached the Word of God with boldness. Guys, listen. We don't know what's coming in our society. We don't. But the outlook certainly doesn't look good. Let us then pray for boldness. Even when the government tries to mandate that we cannot get up here and preach the Bible as it's written, we pray that we will... Preach the Bible as it's written. Right? We will preach the gospel. Alright, let's close out with a few thoughts here. Not a lot, because I've got to preach twice. First of all, we need to learn to trust God the way we see them trusting God in this text. He is still running the show. The train has not left the tracks. I know if you are one of those people who unwisely turns on the evening news and watches the news channel all day and you are freaking out every night when you go to bed, it is easy to believe that God has lost control. I assure you, He has not. Everything is still right on track. Whatever comes our way, whatever persecution is in our future because if if we live on as a country, that's coming. There's just no way that's not in sight. God is sovereign over it though when it happens. He was sovereign over it here and we're no better than them. A prayer needs to be underpinned by the sovereignty of God. That's very important to see in this prayer. There they're confident in the fact that God is sovereign, and so they pray for boldness in the face of persecutions. Look, these people completely depended on God. Now, we get, we get the idea as we read this text that this somehow was just simple for them. And it's not. It's not. They're humans with problems and afflictions, and feelings. They're, they're no different than us. They're fallen. They may be redeemed like we are, but they still have their own struggles. They didn't want to be put in prison. They didn't want to be publicly beaten or stoned. They did not want to lose their life. That's not what they're praying for. But they did depend on God in prayer. And if we turn to God in prayer, we will find boldness we need to carry out the mission that God has given us to carry out. We need to be like the early church that we see here. We need to pray for not only boldness, but clarity. You know, one one of the things that I think is often lost in our day is the clearness of the gospel. The clarity of the gospel. The gospel gets muddy when you hear people talk because everything but the gospel is being preached in our day. And so when the gospel is mentioned, it's not clear. The gospel's not hard. We're sinners. Jesus is not. We've broken every rule God's ever given us and Jesus never broke any. And so He, as a perfect sacrifice, died in our place for our sins, was buried and rose again for our justification. And if you believe in Him... You're saved. Like, that's, that's not a hard message, but somehow it gets lost in all of the fog of modern-day Christianity. We need clarity. But not only that, I think one of the greatest things that we see in this passage is that they had unity. And we need unity. Listen, we need to, we need to put away petty differences. We need to put away personality squabbles. We need to put away childish attitudes. Stop letting immaturity divide us. Christian growth, Christian maturity, the work of the Spirit in our lives will lead us to be a peacemaker, according to Jesus. And He's a lot more of authority than Todd. The work of the Holy Spirit will lead us to be a peacemaker, not a divider, not a troublemaker, always stirring the pot. That's not the Lord if that's where we find ourselves. In fact, Paul labels enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions as works of the flesh. So if that's us, we need to fix that, because it's certainly not the Holy Spirit. Those are the things we should be putting off, not putting on. Look, if we're going to impact our community as a church... We need the unity that we see here in Acts chapter 4. That's what they had. And a divisive attitude destroys unity. It does, and it, and it just completely mars the gospel. Look, When persecution comes, that united church will stand. A divided church will not. This is God's design for churches today. What we see here in Acts 4, this is the design. So let us commit to it. All right, stand with me.